Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about supporting the sector. I'm Jen Matharson, an objects conservative based in Kimmarlandshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. And today we have a special guest host with us. Uh, would you like to introduce Woo. yourself? So I'm Patrick Weiss. I'm the training and development manager at Icon. Hey, welcome, Patrick. Hello. Are you our first Icon? What, official? Icon official as Ooh. a guest host? I think you might be. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. There's not been any interlopers before. Well, to be fair, we've had like Icon trustees. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're the one with the staff badge, you know? I f- yeah, exactly. The one aside from Michael that people probably see most out and about, I suspect. Less so now. Oh, yeah. Much less so now, yeah. Today, I thought we would talk a little bit about supporting the sector because obviously we're in a kind of a rough time right now. So it just felt like the sort of thing to, to have a little talk about. Yeah, we're going through a tough time. If anyone didn't notice, then I'd like to know why and how you didn't notice (laughs) and what tips I can take from you. Uh, Since March 2020, the museum's shut, the gallery's shut, the theatre shut, all of the arts just shut. And it was a tough time till June when everything, i.e. the service industries and everything, opened up again. And we didn't really, I don't think, see a kind of break in job losses or anything and then now obviously November's back second wave is back of COVID-19 and it's just sort of continuing on downhill for the sector and that's a very bleak way to start the episode so I apologize. It is worth saying of course that not all museums reopened straight away so that's another thing because a lot of museums were like well we really need to think this through there were months of planning and you know a lot of changes both you know internally and in terms of how they meet visitors and stuff like that so a lot of places have hadn't actually been reopened all that long when it came to shutting down again which is of course another hard blow it's been a bit of a ride this year it's probably the polite way of saying it (laughs) the uk as a whole has seen a lot of job losses for example i couldn't actually get a very good figure on this to be honest because it varies wildly because i think there are estimates it's anywhere between half a million and like three quarters of a million jobs is the estimate wow they have been lost kind of since the since the start of the pandemic or as a as a direct and is that in the arts in general or in museums no so that's for the whole country at the moment as a conservative estimate However, yeah, okay. um, props to the Museums Association because they have a redundancy tracker, which is super useful. And I look forward to all the reports that will come out of that. The last updated version I could see was 21st of October. And at that point, they had recorded 3,608 jobs lost. Wow. In the museum sector. So that's not heritage and arts because that's a bit bigger but it is museums which gives us some indication of what's going on just it kind of gives you a bit of a picture do they break that down at all not currently i think they are recording it in like in more detail behind the scenes but at the moment it's like a very basic tracker that's available to see for the public we'll link to it it just kind of gives you a, a total and a geographical kind of dotting about of the institutions that have said something uh, but it is a little bit blunt at the moment because, for example, the National Trust job losses, they're all placed in Swindon because that's where the HQ is. But of course, that may not be where the National Trust properties are that are actually losing these people. So it again, it's it can it gives you a snapshot, but not an accurate view. Mm. But I appreciate that it's there as a, as a tool for the sector. It's really vital to have that sort of thing. I think it'd be really interesting to see what it's like across the sector, the private sector as well. Mm, absolutely. Like, I've, it's all sort of anecdotal, isn't it, a lot at this stage, but I've sort of heard both sides, you know, some people who are obviously really struggling and others who are, I don't know, some people have said to me they're busier than ever. Now, not you know, that's probably fewer people in that category. I think it is a really patchy picture. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not, again, I feel like at the start of all of this, you know, there was a feeling that, for example, freelancers were really left out of the picture and that sort of thing because they they don't work in an institution. They're their own thing. And uh, that the, A, that 
there was a problem with like not getting enough support in terms of from the government and stuff like that. But also that people just kind of didn't think about the freelancers as people who would lose out on jobs or in fact who still got jobs or were still working. So these were all things that were kind of uh, a crazy kind of mismatch in terms of just the picture in general. I have two, one question and one statement, I guess. My first sort of question is, I'm guessing with that Museums Association pull of information, we don't have any indication of zero hour contracts and what that means to the figures. So I'm saying basically, are people in zero hour contracts who haven't been given hours counted as having lost their jobs or are they counted as still employed by the institution? Oh, I mean, zero hour contracts are sometimes they're not even counted as employed. Well, they are by the government if they're trying to get through the yeah unemployment figures. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think this varies because what it said on the website when I checked was that this is as reported by the institution. So they're gathering this from either inside information. So someone says we have redundancies coming up. Here's the Mm. details. Or it's press releases and that sort of thing because there's been a lot of like tweets, for example. I'm thinking like anything from the VNA to like the Birmingham Museums Trust have all been saying we're entering a period of redundancy. We're looking to cut x number of jobs most likely but not always they will be full-time equivalent for example Mm, okay so it may be that they're like we need to cut 19 posts but in actual fact that's 25 people because some of them were part-time that sort of things it depends on the institution and how they're reporting it so we're never gonna know for sure even further down the line so i think i think that's a thing to keep in mind is just that it's always gonna be a little bit patchy the information that we get. I mean, also in comparing that to government data, it's almost impossible in a sense anyway, if that's based... Oh, God, yeah. Like claiming work-related benefits, you know, will be the government metric, like a test for that. So, you know, not everyone falls into that category for whatever reason. It's really difficult, isn't it? Like we're looking at um, rerunning our sort of COVID impact survey. Ah, yes, I was going to mention that. Do you want to tell us about the first one? Um, well, we sort of, you know, ran it earlier in the year and it was quite early stages, you know, as you say, like uh, people are on furlough, so it's difficult to see what impact it had on employment rates. I mean, we used it to help define some of the sort of tangible activities we've been doing, you know, sort of like the COVID resource hub and trying to sort of link and push information to members. I think this one coming up will be more telling even at this Mm. stage, even though we're in lockdown two, we'll probably have more hard information to go on, I suspect, at this stage. Mm. Yeah, I I suspect that's true. And I mean, a lot of things will changed now because, I mean, for for starters, in the first lockdown, I was in a job Mm. (laughs) and now I'm trying to run my own business. Like things have changed, you know, in terms of for a lot of people. I mean, I think the picture will be very different now. Mm. So I think that is worthwhile. And I really look forward to, to seeing that. So the freelance picture is is so different anyway as we were just saying because it i mean even from a government point of view it's been sort of vastly mismanaged really but so for example my studio is sort of half well it's half income generating half museum based i've had so many emails inquiries from people who have basically been sitting in their houses for five months looking at all the stuff they've got thinking oh I'd like to do something with that (laughs) and simply the fact that they've had more time has meant that they are now they they now want to contact a conservator and say please help me with this Mm. which is obviously different because my response has been we're not allowed anything in the studio right now (laughs) sorry (laughs) please contact me in the new year yeah um I mean, it pro- maybe it depends yeah. on the type of work and the type of studio. <laughs> it's a bit speculative. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good point. And, but it, it's true that it, it will depend on what kind of work that you're doing, etc. I too have heard like kind of various kinds of things from, from people who are freelancing or working commercially or privately rather than in a museum setting, for example. Not everyone is hit the same. Uh, and that's just true you know everyone is certainly impacted because this is you know a global pandemic maybe things that are hit more are more things like future exhibitions people aren't sure when things are opening and how much money they want to spend on it because how much money are they going to make if they do ticket sales etc and all these sorts of things definitely play a role in the kind of work that conservators do for and in institutions for example I mean, it'd be interesting to see, so, you know, whenever this does end, like, is there going to be a massive backlog of work that 
you know, is a boon for the sector. I don't know. You, mm. you sort of, again, anecdotally, sort of speaking to some people hearing, you know, when lockdown did start to ease originally, they were then suddenly given their next chunk of work. Mm. I can't imagine what it's like, you know, in a sense, sort of feast and famine. That's a really good way of putting it. And it, I bet it depends very much on the the institution and what they've decided to do because I'm really lucky that my institution has said basically we're just pausing the program for a year and we're just going to carry on next year as though it's this year and pretend that 2020 yeah, didn't happen that's good so I've not got the backlog of all of the work I should have been doing in 2020 and all of the work I've got to do in 2021 I mean but if you were getting your work from like small regional museums where you know the mm. budgets are what, what, what position are they going to be in you know are some of them going to be there in a sense, to give the work out, yeah. you sort of maybe the the nationals are always going to be there. They'll get through somehow, potentially. But if your main clients are small museums, yeah, that's going to be a bit harder. But as you say, there may in fact be people who are thinking about work that they want done and that they can somehow find money for through grants and stuff that suddenly they have the time to work on. Mm. You never know what this will bring, and it's it's not a case of it's going to be all sunshine and gold for everyone. <laughs> it's more of a, it will bring good and bad, uh, is what I'm saying. And I am curious to see where that will take us as a sector. I think it'd be interesting to see what the impacts on individuals are as well. Reflecting on, you know, we talk about freelancers, but that's such a broad term in a sense. Mm. And, you know, mm. how people have set themselves up. So how have people been able to be resilient? You know, those that have been, mm. you know, it, has it come down to a decision they made three years ago when they decided to start doing some freelance work, you know, to set themselves up as self-employed versus being employed by their own company? in a sense, because I think mm. those that have set themselves up as limited companies or, you know, that sort of business have been really badly hit, you know, because they can't access any supports. They can take loans, mm. but who can afford to take loans necessarily? I went on a bit of a rant to myself yesterday and I don't know how much I can. I know you did. I don't know anything about it other than I just remember seeing your message about I'm frothing at the mouth and I'm like, what's happening? It, well, it's it's basically that the, I have a lot of rage about this situation that we and we should acknowledge and talk about the huge power the sector has in CPD and self-directed work. We've done so much as a sector to put stuff online, which we should talk about as a, as a massive positive. But there's only so much that we can do when the people who are making the decisions about where jobs are and where the money is going are deciding that they want to, you know, create redundancies in collections and front of house and things like that. I've got four or five pages here of just of just anger. <laughs> few, if ju it, I'm just I'm not going to go I'm not going to go into it because it gets quite <sighs> political and you're definitely allowed to channel some anger into this. It's okay because people out there there will be people who feel angry. Yeah. And feel disappointed. Like no everyone has to be <laughs> has to be super chipper about this like you know it's it's a hard time okay well in that case before we get to chipper before we get to sort of self-powered and before we get to the things that our supporting bodies can and are doing for us I think I would like to acknowledge in that case that the, the anger that I personally and probably lots of other people are feeling is based on the fact that we are in this position where we are on a knife edge as a sector We've been on a knife edge for a good number of years now. And museums have sort of, museums and cultural institutions have sort of limped along in this situation on the backs of the people who are overqualified and underpaid, basically. And these people, they make it work because we love it. And we've talked about this on the podcast a lot of times now that we, um, you know, it causes harm, but it also causes, you know, we, we, we do it, we manage it. And now even the giant institutions, which has surprised me, even, you know, the Tate and the V&A and everyone who you'd think would, you know, they will weather inst as institutions, but they will jettison staff. Even they have to jettison staff. And so I'm angry at the, the government for putting us as a sector in this situation. You know, why are we thinking about profit? We shouldn't be thinking about profit necessarily. We... We are for the 
the good of humanity. <laughs> Learning is for the good of, of, you know, the people. This is our heritage. This is other people's heritage. This is, you know, this is for the good of society. But mm-hmm. we have been sort of poked into the situation of being profitable organizations. And it's the people who are at the bottom doing the work that are the people that seem to be thrown out, I suppose. And the situation is sort of it's I mean it's the same with the NHS really it's getting down to it it's it's sort of been we've been ground down so that we're now so vulnerable as a sector that we have to do this and it's the most vulnerable people that are put at risk (laughs) that's that's a pricey (laughs) you're not wrong and uh, I mean I guess uh, a couple of things to bring up is that for example um, because I was looking at the the job losses for the UK Mm. as I was mentioning and the people worst hit i mean we don't have a lot of demographic data on this at this point no because it everything's still on fire (laughs) but we do know that people aged 16 to 24 for example or people who are very early in their career are the people who are being basically laid off first Mm. and that's obviously a huge problem so that's all of our emerging professionals there's all of the young blood that we need to keep the sector going because everyone's getting older and (laughs) they're the ones being like really badly affected by this obviously this is hitting across the sector and across age brackets but like they are the worst affected and then you know that's that's obviously terrible and it's making a a difficult sector more difficult Uh to work in because there will be fewer jobs i mean that is that's not happy that's not that's not a happy time and uh, no that's definitely not good Uh, the second thing i wanted to bring up was that there was an article on museums association about how a trade union in the uk called uh, pcs and um, trade unions in italy and france were calling for an overhaul of cultural policies exactly for these reasons that essentially they their call to action was that we can't keep doing this to our heritage sector where things are being privatized monetized and capitalism is god and uh, essentially (laughs) that you know it's it's not working it isn't working and they propose that um, access to your cultural heritage should become a human right so that if it is then then that is enshrined in law that you must look after it in a way that currently it's a little bit optional mm. and i mean i sympathize with things like local authorities who are having an awful time because they have all these things that they must provide because they are you know those are the things that people definitely do need well now they're until a couple of days ago a lot some of them were deciding that they they were going to to pay for school kids to eat during holidays so there's you know there's yeah do you want your nice gallery to be open or do you want children to be able to eat over christmas (laughs) yeah yeah exactly Uh, what a terrible kind of situation a lot of local authorities are in for example where where they're like well it's either we look after the old and we can empty your bins (laughs) or or you can have a museum still i mean that's not okay is it also they shouldn't even have to make that choice like it should just be that heritage is something that's looked after and valued mm. and it's not it comes down to you can have your bins emptied or you can have a gallery like that's that, that's that's insanity uh, but yes yeah, so there were actually calls to action in the uk italy and france that this needs to change and you know that's good to see because that's the sort of thing that you know we need to be thinking about i mean this sort of economic valuing of the heritage sector so it affects all things like in society not just heritage sector i remember in a previous life building up an economic uh, model to justify building a park oh wow oh wow and green spaces have to have meet that sort of same economic model of showing you know the financial value they add to the local what? economy um you know it's crazy yeah no because it's that it's because it's between that or you build a fancy new costa that's what society is right now like that everything is a cost and and that's that's a real problem and we're not going to solve that in this episode (laughs) but we can at least recognize that this is a problem that other people are recognizing it's a problem and that this must be worked on especially if we're going to have this green and sustainable and uh, reboot and future that we're all hoping for because we've realized that society currently isn't really all that functional so if we're if we're going to go forward and, and look to the future i think those those are the sorts of things that we really need to be thinking about you know also save the planet because you know what that's that's definitely priority number one but also save heritage because that's a good thing <laughs> tough times need sort of 
tough attitudes in a way um and it's all very well you know little me complaining at the government about how capitalism is bad but <laughs> you know with that that <laughs> attitude isn't going to help anyone unless we actually stage a revolution shh <laughs> uh, now on a list speaking of revolutions um <laughs> some, something i've been really heartened to see how much talk there is about unions and transparency and employment yeah. and all this sorts of stuff that we are really taking seriously as a sector now like how we're employing people and like the, there is movement here in terms of people talking about things like being parts of unions and people like for example having grassroots organizations like fair museum jobs that sort of thing that like the, these sorts of organizations are so important to kind of help anchor a bit more fairness into the way that we employ people and treat people and that sort of thing and i think that is also part of the revolution and i think that's like a small step in becoming Becoming a revolutionary can be to join a union. I say having never been part of a union, which is very hypocritical of me, but there you go. I still think they're a really, really good, good thing to have. And I think they're a good concept. I mean, I think the thing with, you know, unions, you've definitely seen some success even in the last couple of years with how people are working with them. I definitely think, you know, it's a good thing, even freelancers as well. I think there's a lot of benefits, not just people working directly for institutions that should, could consider unions, mm. you know, negotiating sort of I don't know, freelancer day rates, you know, it's going to be, make a massive impact if there's enough people joining the unions to have the clout to do it, you know, in a sense. Yeah, there's actually a really good thread about unions and why they're important. Uh, that was part of the Icon Twitter conference mm. back in December 2019 that we'll pop a link to. That was by Phil Parks and Jane Henderson, mm -hmm. who talked about the impact that unions can have for conservatives, for example. Now, their perspective was obviously quite university based because, you know, they are lecturers. But it was about how it is a useful concept and that it is worthwhile for conservatives to explore, for example coming over and working in the heritage sector i was quite surprised that unions weren't more of a thing if you see what i mean like they 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 weren't really talked about much and like i feel like it was probably my last place of employment that even really talked about unions at all to be honest but at that point you know it was very like this is a local authority union you should join it that sort of thing rather than this is something that champions for heritage people and that sort of thing but now there are there are those options that those are totally things that we can have you know like we can be a part of that if if we want to and yeah it's just about being part of something bigger something that can have your back you know so that you're not feeling alone yeah i mean it doesn't even have to just say champion for heritage works it's about who which union in, is yeah. going to have the biggest impact so if you can have bigger impact by joining the local authority union because there's going to be so much common ground you're going to be impacted upon, you know um, or affected by and similarly with people working say people working for museums and large institutions working with the existing unions or joining the existing unions even if their sort of work isn't always going to directly focus on conservatives it's going to focus on that job role or you know that sort of sort yeah. of person so mm. there's going to be a lot of benefit from it so i i am a member of a union and i'm with i'm a member of my local authority union if you know the museum that i work for that's not a surprise and we're all really hot on <laughs> unions there <laughs> of course still not saying where that is even though it's silly at this point but i do <laughs> want to i do want to wave a flag for prospect because they I, I contacted some unions to see if they had you know statements for this situation and they got back to me within hours by the of, of, of an evening and then by the morning they'd had a statement for me oh and I'd like to read it out I'm really I've heard a lot about prospect in London particularly with um, the the sort of fair salaries protests that were going on in the science mm, museum yeah. for example and they they've done some really great work there so I will read this out for them Prospect has a proven history of supporting members in heritage whilst promoting the sector at all levels. In previous years, through economic challenges with Brexit and austerity, museums and the arts were heavily hit with resulting cuts taking chunks out of workforces and the funds in which the organisations rely. Campaigns undertaken by Prospect Heritage Group cited huge impact on individuals and their organisations across the UK, both financially and personally, and have consistently called for more public funding and better pay in the sector. This was all pre-COVID. What we are now facing is unprecedented and our previous challenges remain, with pandemic piling on additional pressure from all sides. 
Prospect is fighting harder than ever for members to protect them where possible and to support them through inevitable change where it is not. This has included pressing the government to provide replacement income for that lost through museum closures and persuading many employers to top up salaries to 100% during furlough. We have also campaigned Prospect slash Beck2 for better government support for freelance workers. Closure of institutions, redundancy, mental health, finances, safety and equality are all top of the agenda. To protect members and the museums and galleries in which they work is essential, and the more members we have, the more able we are to do this. Our membership has been growing in existing areas, but members in museums and art organisations where we have not been previously represented have also been joining, as they realise that the union can have an impact on minimising job cuts and improving redundancy packages. We have evolved in the way we are dealing with this new crisis and our digital reach out has been welcomed. We may not be face to face, but we always stand side by side. Oh, that's really nice. That is nice. And I was impressed with how quickly they got that to me. Really impressed. Yeah, that is super good. If if it's something that you feel like you are happy to look into, do look into joining a union, you know, that sort of thing. It's definitely an option for support um, at this tremendously troubling time. And something else that I wanted to mention, actually, was that fair museum jobs, which I mentioned earlier. I was hoping to talk to them, but they're very busy right now for a very good reason. And that's because the the week of the 23rd of November, they're doing a fair fair museum job summit uh, online. It's completely free. It's all online. It's the whole week of the 23rd of November. And uh, there are loads of different panels on different topics. So if you feel like you want to join in do uh, i'm on a couple of the panels which is exciting and uh, we'll bung some links to that as well because that looks like it's going to be a super duper week of constructive and positive and awesome things to do with employment and making it fair so that'll be grand keep an eye on that while we're on social media i want to shout out, shout out fair museum jobs because i love them but also shittish museum on instagram fair museum jobs and shittish museum on instagram are the, the most of the places that I get information about redundancies and things that have been going on in the sector with people's jobs and stuff. So I, it's really, oh, wow. I, I think it's fiery and um, really important. Well, we'll pop some links to that as well, because it's it's good to highlight these sorts of things. Good shout. What sort of thing is Icon up to right now that kind of um, help help the membership? I mean, I think there's been such a lot of work done by the groups in particular. You know, uh, we've all had to sort of look at how we do things differently. So, you know, particularly around the CPD and training, you know, we've had to look online and how we can make the most of things like that. Um, and definitely with the fantastic work of the group, so the sort of Conservation Together at Home series. You, oh, phenomenal. I mean, it's been amazing. But you look at stuff like that and the impact, the numbers it's reaching is so, so much higher than we could have hoped for, you know, in a sense. So there are sort of positive stories in that sense. Even with our lecture, we had um, a couple of weeks ago, we had just under 600 people registered to attend. Um, We'd never have got that number, you know, in a room at once. We'd love to, but we'd never have that reach. You know, and it's also giving us the opportunity to reach out to members internationally as well. Can I just jump in to ask, are the lectures that um, are part of the Conservation Together at Home series available to watch after the fact as well? Most of them. There is. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I'd say most of them. There there are a couple that for copyright reasons they don't put up, but I that's very few and I think it's only going to develop you know the other groups are looking at what they can do Mm. as well and making sure you know this could be one of the sort of positive legacies in in terms of you know engaging people who can't get to things so easily because it is expensive and time heavy to travel to you know to to go to talks and presentations so you know I suppose that Mm. is a really positive outcome other than that you know for us it's all we can do is listen to our members you know, and respond to the yeah. concerns people are raising. So we can, rather than give advice, we can give information and direct people to the most appropriate source of information. So uh, things like around the coronavirus hub, which are on our website, which has got sort of a huge array of information that people may find useful, but also about being a natural point where we can share naturally share stories of what other people are doing to give people ideas, mm. you know, how they've been using their time whilst they've been off as well, sort of to help individual members. And then on more of a sort of policy strategic level, 
you know, all that work's continued, you know, in a sense, trying to advocate where we can for the sector with other heritage bodies to have sort of more clout in what we do. Out of interest, what sort of what sort of concerns have people been raising in general and, and what has your response been at ICON? I mean, I think, you know, concerns are coming on an individual level and probably uh, sort of like what we've been talking about today. You know, people are uncertain about the future, uncertain yeah, where, where their next job's coming from. And that's difficult in a sense. So we can, again, provide links to sources where people can get information to help them and to feed those individual stories into our advocacy work. What I was sort of thinking of was is trying not to lose focus of the world post this situation as well you know I think there's a temptation yeah. to get sort of stuck in the moment of the immediate issues but particularly say with we were talking earlier you mentioned earlier about um, unemployment rates and young people you know and what was I, I was looking at the information the other day and it was at 125% increase or there or thereabouts over the last wow. six months which is astonishing you know the, and young people have always been in a difficult position. We sort of know that, but it's even more stark now. And there have been opportunities yeah. like coming up, which, you know, we're trying to engage with. So there's been the government's Kickstarter scheme, which was announced back in September. You know, a huge employ- employability employment scheme um, to create, mm. you know, well over 200,000 jobs by the end of next year for young people. So I think, you know, this is, again, about not losing sight of what we need to do next, you know, and try and engage yeah. in these opportunities. Because what we can't find ourselves is in a situation where five years down the line, we have no conservators, you know, in a sense, because yeah. Yeah, people exactly. haven't been able to find out about the sector or, you know, go through training, whatever it is. So we sort of need to keep yeah. around the long term as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. So some of the things that I know that the Museums Association is doing, for example, to to support their membership, they've got um, a Workforce COVID support Facebook group, which I thought was really sweet. So that's where people can take their worries and concerns and, and talk to them in a safe environment. Um, and then there's uh, a Managing in Crisis Facebook group as well. I'm less sure what they do, but it sounds like it's useful. They have kept going with their like member meetings and regional groups and stuff, but they're all online now because that you know they're a lot about that sort of networking. They've got their own webinar series that's called Coronavirus Conversations, and they've launched a Museums Essentials online learning program so people can keep up with their CPD. So we've mentioned CPD already as part of Icon, for example. They've also, I think, either lowered or frozen their like membership fees and stuff like that as well um, for associate chips oh, and stuff. Of, of They've got a benevolent fund as well that people can apply for if, they're, if they have any particular hardships. There have been these grassroots um, hardship funds as well springing up. I think Museum Freelance may have had one uh, and that sort of thing. I, I mean, these pots are pretty sure to be depleted at this point, but it does mean that this sort of thing is cropping up every now and then. So if you're having a particularly hard time financially, these sorts of things may or may not be available at some point in time. So it's worth keeping your eye on, even if it can be a bit emotionally draining to do so. And as mentioned, they've also got the Redundancy Hub on their website, which is a tremendous resource. And um, I'm sure will be report fodder for years, to be honest. They also had a lot of employability sessions at their recent online conference, for example. So they, they are trying to kind of keep people feeling empowered and inspired and uh, find a bit of support uh, in, in that way. And I guess in some ways that's how conservatives use Twitter, because <laughs> I feel like a lot of us go on Twitter and kind of do outpourings of, oh, my God, I'm really worried about this. And that's kind of that's kind of our equivalent of the Facebook support group, I think. Um, but if anyone has a, has a Facebook support group that's open to like people, then do let me know, because I feel like maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> that's what we were hoping to offer through our sort of Discord server that we set up. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So on jobs, I'm, I want to come back to jobs and and the, the funding, I suppose, side of things, because I, I'd like to know what it is that employers and 
professional bodies can do to encourage the the actual creating of jobs and encourage the sort of channeling of funding whether that's getting funding for a particular project or no or I suppose acknowledging and directing funding towards for example apprenticeships. There's a couple of different things there aren't there how can a professional body influence funders I suppose first and foremost we do do sort of you know, advocate for the inclusion of conservation in mm-hmm. as a requirement in grant funding or to make sure the scope of projects which um, or funding rather which targets the art sector in the most general sense specifically re- refers to conservators or is open to conservators to apply for so you know that's one thing we can do on that sort of more strategic level how we can influence um, accessing funding for jobs. Well, I suppose what I would say is, you know, looking at the broadest sort of funding to create jobs. So if it's not, even if it's not directly supporting the heritage sector, one of my impressions, now it might not be 100% right, is that after that sort of initial slowdown in sort of grant funding being available and then a rush of quite targeted funding, I mean, it's a major funders having some of their big programs on hold, things are starting to open up again. But the sorts of programs that create and provide money for jobs and apprenticeships, you know, they are, they would have been the large EU funded entry to mm. employment schemes. And, you know, wh- wh- how is that going to, you know, it is apparently mm. going to be replaced, but what is it going to be replaced by? Yeah. It's really difficult to know, isn't it? And this, but this funding has always, always been directed at that earlier stage. You know, what opportunities are there to access funding to employ mid-career and more senior conservators. I suppose I don't know at this stage. It's hard to predict what's going to happen, but I guess I do want to encourage people to, you know, reach out and feel free to talk to us. If you feel like you need to talk, we would love to listen to you. If you've if you've got worries, if you've been made redundant, you know, come and talk to us. We can't make it better, but we can at least listen. You know, it's 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 something, and uh, you aren't alone. I mean, you you're not going to be, and you definitely aren't. So you know, there there is that. I'm also super curious to see how this plays out in other parts of the world, for example, because we're you know a UK based podcast, but you know we do have listeners all over the world. So you know, I'd 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 love to hear what the situation is like where you are. So um, do please get in touch and do share. Um, you don't have to like be willing to share on the show, but you know, if you just want to talk to us, you can just saying. So just FYI. I have this uh, a bit of a fun, having never run or hosted an apprentice, I have a huge fondness for the idea of having an apprentice in mm. my studio and starting that as a thing. What can we do as, again, what can we do as, as institutions that will help jobs and help the situation that we already find ourselves in? How can this be more positive? Are there things that institutions can do to gain funding to host apprenticeships? And uh, What will that look like in the next year? So let's say in 2021 and 2022, if an institution wanted to have apprenticeships one or two Let's just say as an example, what could they do, do you think? It depends on the type of organisation or the size of organisation. So if there's the apprenticeship levy, which is the effectively the additional tax that um, large employers with a paid bill of over £3 million a year have to pay on top of their salary costs, which is ring fence for apprenticeship delivery. And that pays for the training effectively. So within conservation, that pays them to do their level four cultural heritage uh, conservation technician apprenticeship or their level seven cultural heritage conservator apprenticeship. So that's what that levy funding can be used for to pay for the training. The salary you know, is a different thing entirely. So what I see personally is that I can imagine lots of the apprenticeship starts are going to be used to upskill existing staff members, right? Um, probably first and foremost, rather than necessarily creating new jobs. Because, you know, an apprentice is an employee, so organisation has to be able to take on that staff member. Now, an apprentice in their first year of an apprenticeship, no matter how old they are, can be paid quite an astonishingly low salary. So the 
you know, ability to bring on and train apprentices really comes down to the ability of organisations to employ staff members, you know, first and foremost, at what we would hope would be at good, appropriate rates for those staff members, you know, probably recognising they are training, you know, so that probably will be factored in. And then if we look at those smaller organisations, which is going to be a large part of the sector with levy being pitched at um, pay bills of over three million pounds a year so large numbers of employers in the conservation sector are going to obviously fall below that employers there still have to take on the staff members but pay five percent of the total training cost so for the level four the uh, technician apprenticeship that's about 450 pounds and you might look at that and say, well, that's actually not very bad for a 18-month training program for a member of staff to upskill them. And, you know, even if you do have to pay for it, and if it's the level seven, this is me doing 5% in the top of my head. It's a 27K well <laughs> total funding pot. So <laughs> what's that? 13.750 or something? Is that 5% of 27K? You know, so it's still not very much for a master's degree. And someone that has been invested in. So what you know, whilst there's that outlay initially, what people are gonna get is staff members that feel invested in as well. So So obviously it's been both a very busy year and a very quiet year for a lot of people. We've talked about the struggles of emerging professionals and a bit about mid career. What I'm wondering about and what I was think I've been thinking about myself gradually over the years is the prospect of accreditation. So I have been wondering about starting to work on accreditation a little bit this year, but, you know, frankly, finding the whole motivation during furlough thing, a bit of a, (laughs) you know, tub of treacle to wade through. So do you have, have you had any sort of, have you seen an influx in this? Have you, in in Icon, have you um, been working on this as a team? I mean, I think, some people have looked at it in different ways, you know, and so some people have been using the time to get on with their applications, which, you know, mm-hmm. I think is a really positive thing that people can do, or, or at the very least, yeah. you know, thinking about their professional practice and sort of becoming comfortable with the process. Um, so I think in that sense, it's been a sort of a really good opportunity. Have we noticed the impact? Well, judging so far on the applications that have come in, the feedback is very positive, you know, without going into any detail because we're midway mm-hmm. through a round. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, those that have submitted have really used that time, which I think is a you know, really positive step. And are they going to be, do you think people will be um, affected by not physically being in a studio or or lab, for example. If imagine this second lockdown lasts for the same length of time as the first one. Just to just to guess, will do you think that the worry of well, when am I actually going to start practicing again? Do you think that's seeping in at all? And what would you say to people who are having that concern? It depends on what the what the issue is with not being able to get into you know to work on your documents. You know, is it because you can't confidently write up a project? Well. I might say, write your best draft and get yourself into a position where you just need to go and check the facts, you know, almost before you submit. So if that's the sort of stage you're at, or is it people going through the process um, who've already submitted applications and are waiting for assessment? We're trying to do quite a lot with online assessments and trialing online assessments at the moment, you know, and again, sort of touch wood, it seems to have been going quite smoothly. You know, understandably, there are questions we've got to answer and the accreditation committee have got to feel comfortable with but we're trying to make sure we don't completely stop in terms of the stuff we deliver that might be something people aren't sort of aware enough about as they should be that we are thinking of these things to try and keep the process moving something for me to consider then Hmm. how do we build people's confidence and i think what we can do is just continue sharing positive stories of what people have been doing, how people have gone through it. Don't you have some good examples of that that have come through? The Icons blog, for example, I've seen a couple of good stories on there. So it's Yeah, and we had Pathway Week this week, uh, this week, this year, where we had yeah, 110 mm. people registered over the week, which was, you know, fantastic in a sense. So there are lots of people. There's a community of people there, you know, thinking about this stuff. And I think talking to each other, you know, this was again going back to sort of making the most of some of these communities. 
you know, talk to other people in the same position as you. And I, I have been very pleased to see that, you know, there have been loads of lovely things shared about how people have been keeping up their CPD and that sort of thing and things that they have been doing throughout um, lockdown one and now lockdown two. So it's It's been really nice to see, you know, like definitely the conservation webinars have helped a huge deal. People have been attending conferences, um, most recently the IIC conference, of course, and people people have been really engaged online, which has, has been really nice to see. But even if you haven't been doing things online, you know, it, there's, there's been loads of ways that you can you can keep practicing or that you can keep your hand skills up to date and all sorts of things. And in fact, I would love if people could share stories of what they've been doing. That would be great because I, I love hearing about the things that people have been doing to kind of um, stay in touch with their professional identity. It's It's been really it's been really nice to see. So do share if, if you feel like it. I would love that as well. And I would just like to acknowledge to all of those people who are listening to this lying on the sofa. Sometimes I <laughs> can only lie on the sofa and knit in a day. So if that's if yes, that's what you need to do okay. to conserve your emotional energy during this bloody time, then that's okay. Always uh, conserve yourself first. <laughs> you're important too just so you know actually just because someone's on furlough doesn't mean they've got nothing to do <laughs> don't have time to educate your children and think about your own cpd the whole time that's understandable <laughs> quite just be kind to yourselves guys just remember that today i'm reviewing culture is bad for you inequality in the cultural and creative industries by Rian brooke dave o'brien and Mark Taylor. This is a 2020 publication from Manchester University Press. I choose to review this book in today's episode because it kind of ties into all of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast, particularly in this episode. This book, with its controversial title, does recognise that we do keep saying that culture is good for you, and there is evidence to support that, but that it is rife with inequalities. And that makes it an extremely honest book. It also helps that it's fresh off the presses. It came out in September and it even has an introduction mentioning coronavirus. So it feels extremely topical. The book is split into several chapters. Is culture good for you? Who works in culture? Who consumes culture? When does inequality begin in culture workers' lives? Is it still good work if you're not getting paid? Was there ever a golden age? How is inequality experienced? Why don't women run culture? What about the men? And finally, a juicy conclusion. Now, this has been an absolute treat to read. Uh, This is the perfect sort of thing that I love. I love how incredibly well-researched this book is. It is everything that gives me life. A lot of it draws on interviews that were part of a research project. I love how they've used and analysed the interviews. I feel invested in these people that, you know, their names have been changed to protect their identities, but I feel really invested in them. And I should, because they are real people and not as in distant past. They work and live amongst us. They are our colleagues and our friends. And you should care about their experiences. They are you. I should also say that this isn't just about the museum world or just about what we might call the heritage sector. This book is about cultural and creative industries. So it's it's broader than that, but it's still a distinct slice. I love the amount of time spent defining these things in this book so that you're clear on what they're talking about and what this pertains to. So we've got people here working in theatre, um, in film production, in museums, in art galleries. It spans so many different roles, but they have the same problems. And it's explored in excruciating, in a good way, detail in this book. It's thorough, it's well-researched, and above all else, it's well-analysed. And that's the sort of book that I just love reading, but that's because I'm a giant nerd. This is kind of the data that we all need to back up our diversity arguments. This is definitely required reading for everyone. It explores the way we consume culture, how the meritocracy is a lie, because you don't just get into the cultural sector because you're good. 
It's about who you know and all those gross things that we pretend aren't true anymore. But they still are. And we need to reckon with it. It's not a cheerful read, but it's inspiring in a way that, if you're anything like me, it sets you on fire with rage about the system and and it sparks something about how we need to tear it down and how we need to reevaluate. And yeah, it's an inspiring book, I would say. This is book of the year material for me. I really enjoyed this and I will recommend this book to everyone I know. Uh, I just will. Initially, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I might give this book away. No, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to reread this. I'm going to revisit it. I hope that I'm going to see the world change because if it doesn't, what is the point? You know, we keep saying that culture is for everyone, but if anything, this book highlights that we would like culture to be for everyone, but we've defined culture in a certain way and we have made sure that only certain people consume it or work in it and that needs to change. We're not as relevant as we think we are and we need to wake up. It's gotten me really fired up. I love that about it. This is a book for making rebels. I hope anyway. It's not often that I read like social sciences kind of books anymore because that was more of a thing I did in my academic days as part of university and stuff like that. But you know what? This is a must read. It's available in paperback. It's got 384 pages and it costs eleven ninety nine. although apparently only £7.19 now that I'm looking at it. Um, thereabouts. It's not very expensive. And you can buy it from Manchester University Press directly or from Amazon. We'll pop links to it. This is definitely one for the Christmas pile. Anyway, this is a good book. Go read it. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Gwen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're the Seaward, and you'll be listening to Patrick Wife, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jen Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about learning and teaching remotely. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I've hit record. Oh, good. So you got my little do-do-do-do-do. I did. Fantastic. (laughs)